So I actually want to start with a confession. I'm a recovering knife licker. And, and by that I mean, throughout my life, I typically when I, I cut my food or I, I spread stuff on, say, bread, I, I always lick my knife. I, I shouldn't say always. I am, as I said, recovering. Uh, but I do it in a really obvious way. And I don't see too much of a problem with it. But So this leads into my second confession. I love being married to Sarah. She's great. But quickly, after, uh, or soon after getting married, I came to the realization that if I want to stay married to Sarah, I need to stop licking my knife. <laughs> Especially in public, right? Because the restaurant, I just get the eyes, you know, the eyes. Stop it. I'm just kidding. She wouldn't divorce me for that, I hope. But we can agree that actions have consequences, right? Like, Sarah wants us to be a family, and and therefore I want us to be a family that's not known for its knife licking. (laughs) It's good to have that unity. So Sarah keeps me accountable, right, with the eyes and the, put your knife down, sort of thing. And and, and I'm getting it, right? I'm on the road to recovery. So unity, would you agree unity in family is a good thing? Yeah? How about, how about the church? Do you say that, that us as a, as a church family, we should be unified in, in what we do and what we think and where we go? What is the church supposed to do with the knife lickers in her midst? Or more importantly, what's the church to do with, with people who are, are openly sinning, like in, in rebellion against God and, and causing harm to themselves and causing disunity within the church community? What, are, what, what should we do? Should we say something? I know some people might say, well, you know what? That's, that's not really being loving, right? Like we don't want to judge people. We don't want to, to point out people's flaws. So let's just make that, leave it between them and God. Or, or other of us might be kind of on the other end of that spectrum and, and say, you know what, no, 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 we need to be keeping tallies, right? Like, we gotta, we, gotta read, we gotta read the tally on Sunday mornings or run right up to people and make sure, like, hey, I noticed you've been doing X, Y, and Z, and, and you know, you need to stop it. Or, you know, so there, there's a couple of different ways, I think, sometimes we can respond to, to that question. Or maybe you can think of a different way. I think any way we look at it, hopefully people will be saying they're doing it out of love, Though that's the the motivation behind why they're doing it. But how do we answer that question? How do we we deal with that in the church? We're continuing our series today on the 21st century. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you'd like to turn there, we'll have it up on the screen too. But if you have your Bibles or your tablets or your smartphones, I encourage you to to flip there. We're skipping from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5. But... We'll be touching on those. And we've learned in the first couple of weeks a couple of really important things. First of all, the the need to have Jesus' view, God's view of the church, a high view of the church, that we're the body of Christ and therefore deserving of a high view, to have God's view of us, God's perspective. We've also learned from last week that we need to have unity in the church. That's an important thing. So we ask ourselves the question, though, what happens when something threatens that perspective, that high perspective, and, and starts to cause disunity in the church? How, how should we respond 
to that. And this is one of the helpful aspects of today's passage and, and what I want us to take out of this today. Here's, here's our big idea that I want you to, to have in the back of your minds as we go through this, and that's unity requires accountability. See, without accountability, unity, I'm going to argue, is impossible. And we're going to work that out over the next number of minutes. The really cool thing I think about, or one of the cool things about today's passage is that you can preach many different sermons out of this passage because it, it's 13 verses, so there's, it's quite large, but also it's thematically rich. There's lots of different themes we see coming up. I've chosen to pick up on a thread, though, that runs through the first number of chapters in the letter in order to give us a fuller picture of, of the scene that's actually happening and how we as the church in, in the 21st century can learn from Paul and, and from the first century church and try to avoid the same issues that they're experiencing because make no mistake, we are much more similar than we are dissimilar. Now, what, what I wanted to do when I was thinking about this is just stand up here and read the first four chapters for all of us uh, to be able to get the, the full picture. So you could see this thread of unity that you've, you've heard preached so far from up here uh, through the next few chapters into our, what it could be seen as a case study today. But instead, I'm just going to trace it back so you can see for yourself. Uh, starting with verse 2, Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that unity there. And Paul really spells it out. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So in that verse, it hints at, the, at that source of unity, Jesus being the, the, what the focus is, but he really gets into it when he hits on uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He outlines what it, some other people might build their foundations on. He says, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the foundation that needs to be laid. So moving into chapter 2, Paul then discusses wisdom that comes from God and, and those in the church need to have. He gets back to this idea, the, the unifying mind. He says the mind of Christ in verse 14, talk, really painting this picture of having one view, a communal vision for how things are supposed to go. And then jumping into chapter 3, he gets back into and, and asks them to remember that there are causes of disunity, primarily stemming from spiritual immaturity. Right? They keep following after people. They're not following after Jesus. They need to be unified under the saving grace of God, not under Paul or Apollos. Paul encourages them to be working, to be building the church up on top of this foundation. I love this. In verse 16, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 3, do you not know that you, and you here is plural, so he's talking about the church, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we can see that breaking unity, somebody volitionally, purposely breaking unity, that there's consequences for that, causing disunity in the church. We, it's not a good thing. In verse 23, he goes on that they are in fact Jesus. They are Jesus's, reminding that they are gathered as one people under his lordship. And then finally in chapter four, 
Paul begins by pointing out that him and the other leaders are servants of Jesus. They're not above him. They're not trying to place themselves above, nor should they be placing him above. That he sent them Timothy to remind them of what Paul was teaching and that there should be unity in following Jesus. He then finishes up chapter 4 with this great little verse. For the kingdom of God does not consist, oh, sorry, uh, but what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a gentleness or spirit of gentleness? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So you can see they have a choice for how Paul is going to be coming to them like a good father. Their behavior will dictate his response. And then so he launches in to our text today. And so as we read this, I want you to keep that context of unity in the church and that unity requires accountability at the forefront of your mind. So it is actually reported, so actually so in, in light of what we've just been talking about, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not even know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. doesn't actually matter what we do in life or what we're doing in life. We can't have unity without accountability. Any sort of relationship that we're trying to be in, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or the workplace or school, any team that is trying to move in a certain direction together requires accountability. This is why we're so fortunate that Paul included this scene in his letter and addressed it because he gives us yet another chance to see God's love for his church and his desire for his church to reflect him properly into the world. 
So I, I really want to help pull out what's happening in our, in our scene here. We're going to do that by asking three questions under the umbrella of unity requiring accountability. We're going to ask two questions that we're going to get straight from uh, and pull from the scene uh, that we see right in the text, and that's what's happening and why is this happening. And then we're going to ask a third question that we're going to be able to gather from the text, but we're going to be able to flesh out a little bit in a couple of other places, and, and that's how do we avoid it? So what's happening? Why is this happening? And then how do we avoid it? So, and what's happening? Right away in verse 1, we see what's happening is, is there, this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. Kind of makes knife licking look tame. But this is really bad, right? Because we have the Romans, right? The Romans. And and they're talking about it. They're gossiping about it. They're talking amongst themselves going, hey, did you hear what that dude over at that weird new religion thing? Did you hear what he's doing? He's sleeping with his stepmom. This is the Roman Empire. Like, Roman writer Cicero notes, not about this particular scene, but I guess elsewhere, he writes, mother-in-law marries son-in-law. Oh, to think of the woman's debauchery, unbelievable, unheard of. To think that she did not even flinch. See, this is pretty telling because I don't know about you, but stuff that I've read about the Roman Empire, at least before this, was like, well, I thought they were pretty bad, right? Like, I thought, like, sexually and stuff. So I'm like, oh, well, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I was mistaken. So, like any good preacher, I decided to research sexual behavior in first century Rome. And, and needless to say, I, I wasn't wrong. It's actually worse than I thought. Like they were seriously perverted, particularly when it came to the imperial courts. Like, they, like I'm going to spare you the details, but they did some whacked out stuff. And now they're, but they're judging them, like this guy, right? Like that's how bad this is, right? Like this is, it's really bad. But it, as readers to, of God's word to us, like the, the, the sort of saving grace of this is that we now actually have a case study of sorts that we can look at. We can ask the text, well, what would Paul say to the church in response to this issue? Well, how would he deal with this? And right in uh, the beginning of chapter two, he says, and you are arrogant. So here we have a church community and so the, the word is you. He's not talking about individual at this point. He's talking you, right? It's, it's the, the plural. And they're not doing about this, anything about this guy's behavior, it would seem. There is a sense of complacency. There is, there's havoc being wrought on, because of this guy's actions, and, and there doesn't seem to be any action going on at all. It's wreaking havoc in this guy's life and in the community. We see that there's no accountability there. Uh, last year, Sarah and I, uh, we decided we are going to take Caddy to a little play place, right? Like, walk in there, and it's pretty awesome, like slides and cushions and, and all this stuff, and a bunch of people. It was on a weekend, I believe, and, uh, or a holiday, so there's quite a few people there. And Caddy was still pretty small then. Just, he was just uh, starting to walk, and, and one's one of the younger kids there. But we thought, oh, we can still have some fun. So we kind of send him on his way, and he, and he goes in, and almost immediately, there's a hit and run. Right? This kid runs by, smokes him, knocks him down. He goes flying. It was like a Peanuts cartoon. And I jump, I jump, I spring into action, right? It's my boy. And so I pick him up, and I don't like to be, you know, the, the judgy kind of backseat parent, but still, I, I look behind me looking for mom to, and, and waiting for this, like, you know, hey, you know, Jimmy, don't be, 
running into the little kids, play nice or, or something, right? Like a, like a, a look. What I saw was mom with, the, with her camera, and she was just like, oh, look at the little Jimmy. He's having such a good look. You're just having a, having a good time with this, right? And so all kinds of profane things ran through my mind as I'm picking up my crying son. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, they're just trying to have some fun and, and whatever, and let's, let's move on, right? This is an isolated incident. But we go over to somewhere else, and then it happened again. And then it happened again, and then it happened again. My kid just kept getting KO'd, and I was like, what is going on here? No one's doing anything about this. I didn't actually end up doing anything about it. If you're asking, I didn't freak out. But I, I, started, to th- I started to think about it. I'm like, what's going on? So I, I'm like, okay, well, maybe, you know, discipline, it can kind of ruin the kid's fun, right? Like maybe they didn't want to stop the kid from having a good time, so they're going to maybe do it later or, or something. Or perhaps they didn't want to ruin their fun. Like this little play place had a a nice little cafe in it with some biscuits and and mom was, or dad was getting to sit there and and talk with their friends, right? But maybe you don't want to interrupt that to go and and discipline somebody, right? So I went into this situation hoping that there could be this sort of harmonious child-run utopia or something like that. But so obviously I had unrealistic expectations. But at the same time, Harmony could still happen, at least to some degree, if there was some sort of accountability, if there was something that was going on. But that was clearly not happening. And Paul is saying that this is what's happening in the church. Nobody's being held accountable. And he doesn't get into why there's no accountability going on. So we don't know if it's because they're worried about them not having fun or they're, they're uh, worried about themselves not having fun. He doesn't say, but it, it doesn't actually matter why they're not holding him accountable. The bottom line is that they should be because they should be mourning the loss of this man's connection to the community as well as the own problems or the problems that, it's happening, that are happening in their own community because of realistically, their, their laziness for not participating in holding him accountable. So finally, so this guy, is, he's with his stepmom. The church isn't doing anything about it. Now Paul's entering in, and he's demanding that, judge, or that uh, this guy be disciplined. This is the third thing that's happening. Verse, uh, right at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he quickly makes his case for this. He says, verse 3, he's passed judgment on this person. He then directs them to gather together in community, together in order to enact the discipline. And then in verse 5, he lets them know how both the how and then the why of the discipline. He writes, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Say what? Okay, so that's, that's what's happening. Now, why is this happening? Right in the middle of verse 2 there, Paul says what they ought to be doing. And he says you ought to be mourning. Because nobody in this situation at this point, really, the guy or the church community, are, are understanding just how serious this situation is. They, they don't seem to have a clue. Uh, back in 2009, I, I woke up one morning and I had some pain in my, in my chest and I didn't know what was going on. I, I was like, man, and it kept getting worse. And so I thought, maybe I'm having a heart attack. So I decided to drive myself to the hospital. I know, right? Like, I got issues. Uh, so I get to the hospital, and the, 
the doctor tells me it's my lung. It turns out I was having a, uh, a, I had a spontaneous pneumothorax that turned into a tension pneumothorax. And for those of you who aren't doctors, and I'm not one either, I just know those words, and I feel important saying them. Uh, <laughs> essentially, it, I had a collapsed lung. And what was happening is the air was coming into my chest cavity, but it couldn't get out. So it was affecting my heart and my lung and anything else that's in there and was causing a little bit of discomfort, you could say. So I'm sitting there and he tells me that I'm having a a collapsed lung and he's going to fix me up. I'm like, okay. But he kind of left it at that. And so I'm sitting there, I'm kind of smiling on my little bed in the emergency room in mission. And uh, this nurse walks up to me with really concerned look on her face and and she says, why are you smiling? And I said, well, you know, you know it's not a heart attack. You, it's my lung. You guys are going to fix it. It's, I'll be home this afternoon, maybe. You know, I'm good. And she's like, because I had no idea. Like, I was literally like a half an hour away from dying. Like, it was really bad. But he just didn't want to worry me. So he just kept that information, played it close to the vest. And uh, she's like, but this is really going to hurt. Like, you don't know how bad this is. I'm like, are you trying to scare me? Like, what, what's going on? But... She, she was right. Like, I had no clue how bad of a situation I was in. Like, how close to death I was, nor, and it was bad, like, how bad that pain was going to be in order to get me out of the problem that I was in. Paul is saying to these people, like, you guys, have, you guys have no clue what is going on. You've let this get so far that it's going to be a problem. But he warned them. It's not like this is coming out of left field. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, leading them to believe that you shouldn't get there in the first place, right? Like if you just avoided that altogether, this problem wouldn't be there. So if this guy's community had been holding him accountable, perhaps, and I'm stressing that word perhaps, because the obstinance of the human heart is great, But perhaps this wouldn't have got this far. Perhaps they might have been able to lead him back into repentance, lovingly into a better choice. But because he chose to get with his dad's wife, Paul is telling them to deliver him over to Satan. What does that mean? Hopefully this can start to help. In, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, John writes, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So lines are, are being drawn. We're listening to Jesus' prayer in John 17, verses 14 and 15. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I'm not of this world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, right? Because how else can the church impact the world if it is out of it? So he's saying, keep them in it, but I'm asking that you protect them to keep them from the evil one. So in other words, the the church community, people that are made up, or sorry, a community that is made up of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, they act as a haven. We act as a haven for each other. If we're followers of Jesus, we help protect one another. Kind of like a flock of sheep, right? 
The church then is, is set apart from the rest of the world, but in order to be sent to it for its good. So that's why its purity is so important. The church community, however, has also been empowered to withdraw that protection if someone is doing something that threatens the unity of the community. Now, I need to be perfectly clear at this point because our passage doesn't quite speak to this uh, clearly, but this is the last resort. In In the succession of events that lead up to this, this is the final action that needs to be taken from the church. And I also want to stress that this isn't some kind of uh, handing a person over to Satan isn't something to rejoice in or isn't sort of snuff film fodder where we maniacally cackle at, at the person getting theirs, right? It serves them right, Satan swooping down and killing them. It's not the picture here. This is not what is happening. What is happening is the person is being left unprotected. And by that, I mean they're being left to experience the consequences of their own actions. See, in the church, when when we walk to the church, being in it doesn't mean that bad things aren't still going to happen to us. Remember, if you were here during my my psalm sermon, I, I mentioned that life still sucks sometimes, even if you're a Christian, right? Bad things can happen to us. But what we have in the church is a community of people gathered together, and if unified, come alongside one another with compassion and with love and help soften that suffering. But that's when just random bad things happen to us. But when we are actually willfully rebelling against God and hurting ourselves in the community, the consequences are going to happen there and the church then is called to withdraw that sense of love and compassion in a direct relational sense in order for the person to be able to experience exactly what they're doing to themselves. I hope you can see, though, that this is a direct result of their heightened sense of self-sufficiency. This is, in other words, selfish choices are bringing this upon the person. And it's signaling to everybody around them, that they actually don't want to be a part of the community. It's going to be more obvious when we get to the steps in a minute. But people, we need to be clear, people that make up the church do so by expressly pointing to their need for Jesus in their lives. I am a sinner. I'm a person that is bent towards rebellion with God and I need the grace of Jesus in my life. I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus. It's a a big, huge part of the gospel, right? So if a person isn't expressing that need, because, friends, it is easy to forget. It's real easy to forget that we need Jesus. If a person isn't expressing that, how can we consider them a person who actually seriously wants to be a member of the community in good standing or wants to be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem or wants to be a person who wants to actually be a good person. So by withdrawing that protection, as unfortunate as it is, it's, it's a jarring that will hopefully bring a person back 
Think of it as when you're driving down the road and you start to go out of your lane, right? You know those little cuts that the nice highway people have made for us? For me as I doze out, right? That jarring feeling gets me back in my lane. This is how it's supposed to be. It's always supposed to be reorienting a person back on track. See, the interesting thing here is Paul has actually experienced, pardon me, experienced this to some degree himself. 2 Corinthians 12.7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, I don't know about you, but if Jesus was directly giving me revelation, I might start to get a little bit conceited as well. So it was the case for him, and he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul needed to be saved from humanity's inclination towards pride and arrogance. And it's just like this guy does. His unwillingness to cut it out has left them no choice, but make no mistake, this is for his own good. Just as I needed to experience pain to, to heal with my collapsed lung, this guy needs to see how bad his actions are for him and for the community at large. Because like I said, what does it say about a person who says they want to be a better person, who claims they want to be a productive member of the community, yet seem unwilling to be held accountable for their actions. Start to question about whether they actually do want that, right? Like, they're just leaving their options open, maybe. Like something enticing comes along. It's a lot easier to engage in that kind of stuff if no one's watching, right? One of my past mentors used to tell me, don't tell me what you're doing, show me what you're doing. And this was in a recovery context. So us, us recovery guys, we like to talk a lot about how we're cleaning up and how we're doing good. We're good at the talking. But if, if we're not walking the walk that matches that talk, well, we're not doing ourselves any good and we're certainly not doing anybody else any good either. So how can we avoid this? Well, there's a couple of ways, uh, both uh, communally as well as individual, we can do that. But it's important that, if we, or that we stop for a second and, and reacquaint ourselves with what exactly the church is supposed to be. Because we live in, and, and Matt's talked about, Pastor Matt's talked about this, we live in an individualistic culture. So by that, we typically, when we're going to decide, hey, I'm going to do something, we typically will decide what we're going to do based on what I, like I'll make a decision based on what I'm going to get out of it first. And then what perhaps it might do to help the community. But I, I'm looking out for number one first. Sound about right? First Corinthian church is doing the same thing. So I, I, we want to start something. How does this benefit me? The church that Jesus laid out for us, however, has a different orientation in mind. The church, he says, is supposed to be centered on the gospel, rooted in the Bible, gathered in community, empowered by the Spirit, equipped for ministry, and then sent on mission. I hope that sounds familiar. And these incredible acts of worship that we have been given the privilege and the empowerment to partake in are most effective for us and for the community at large 
if we have unity, if we're doing things together. Because can you try to imagine trying to be centered on the gospel or, or equipping ourselves or, or being sent on mission if we're kind of doing it individualistically, if we're kind of every person for themselves? It'd be a little like herding cats, wouldn't it? You ever try to move a number of cats in a certain direction? It doesn't, it doesn't work that well. And, and neither does a church community that's thinking about themselves first. And that's what Paul is saying is, is the inclination in the first century church and what our inclination, whether we can see it or not, this is our inclination, is to think about ourselves first rather than the community. So we have a vision of what the church is supposed to be, right, with our six things. And now we have an example, a case study of, of what a dysfunction, what that can wreak in there. And so I hope you can see why unity requires accountability. Right in the center of this passage, Paul draws from the Passover theme, the this, this celebration of God's salvific work in their lives and how Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. This is something to rejoice in, that Jesus has already been sacrificed on our behalf. The, the hard work is done, and now out of that we respond, not with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the foundation for the community that we're supposed to be living in. So how can we accomplish this? Well, Jesus teaches in Matthew 18. We'll have it up here uh, on church discipline. And, and so make no mistake, what is happening in this is the church is participating in church discipline. I'm talking about accountability. Discipline falls under that umbrella. And so with accountability, hopefully you don't get to the point of discipline. But if you do, if we do, this is how it's supposed to be done, a la Jesus. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step one. You, you approach the person yourself. This, isn't, this only needs to go between you and them. But if he or she doesn't listen to you, you, or sorry, if he or she does listen to you, you've gained a brother. So they've been reoriented. That's the goal, right? They're back on track. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's step two. Bring people. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So get leadership involved. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And in this context, what that means is break fellowship with them. You need to notice, though, as we read through that and we read through Paul's discussion in, in 1 Corinthians 5, they both use the word brother. It's a, it's a word of affection, Right? But it's also a word that's used to signify that this person has put themselves under the authority of the church. They've invited accountability in. And this bears a stark reminder, and, and this is why we are so, uh, it is so important to us here at Central, the, the ministry and, and partnership, being ministry partners, because essentially people, when we sign these covenants, we're saying, yes, I want to grow in my relationship with Jesus, and I want you to help me accountable in doing that. So this person has put themselves under the authority and asked them to do this. 
by being a part of the church. Because people who don't claim to follow Jesus, they shouldn't have to worry about other people judging them. Paul says so in verse 10. It's not our job to judge the outside world about what they're doing. It's, it's our job to keep each other accountable, to keep each other pointing towards a sense of holiness and righteous living. That's the goal, not other people. We waste our time with that. But there's consequences. So there is consequences for those who break unity in the church and, and not just the sexually immoral. Paul gets into that in verse 11. But let's assume that the church did in Corinth, did the first three steps. It's a good uh, Assumption. We can see that restoration must always be the motivation because otherwise it's going to be one strike and you're out, right? Like why would the church bother trying to get someone to come back if they don't actually really care about them being, or point it, sorry, why would the church care about pointing something out if they don't actually care about them coming back? That's why there's multiple steps. The, the, the hope is that multiple people, multiple situations will cause conviction in a person's life and they'll want to come back. Because remember, even the fourth step is for their own good. Paul writes, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So it's for restoration, done with love, and the grace that we've already been shown by a Savior who died for us while we were still yet sinners. Isn't that awesome? This is our opportunity. While we're still in rebellion against God, that is the grace we've been shown. So that's the grace that we must show. We've got to remember as a community then and be excited about that we belong to a community that there has to be a safe place for people to be able to come and to be able to open up about the things that they're struggling with. One thing I love about Central is that we open up places like Freedom Session for people to be able to come in and talk about some of the things that are affecting them, that are dysfunctional in their life and that they can work through. We need to not stigmatize people with mental health issues that, that cause uh, problems in their life or, or people that have lust issues that cause problems with pornography addiction or, or adultery or any of the things that impact their own lives and the church. We need to be able to help people who are moving in that direction, hopefully, or who get stuck in it by being a place where they can come and confess that's why I'm glad that we're starting this new program here. It's called uh, Spiritual Informing. And essentially what we're doing is we're allowing people to come in. So when, you're, when your friends or people in church or, or someone that you know goes here is, is doing something sinful, you can come and you can tell us. And in return, you start to get what we call good citizen of central points. And you can, you can acquire these and save them up. And then each month then you can turn them in for something. It's kind of like Bible bucks, but you can turn them in for things like candy and, and, and all of that. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. They, they shot my idea down. But, but seriously, though, like, we don't want to have a community that, can, that is going or is bent towards, let's, you know, let's just round up all the sinners. Let's, you know, round them up and, and get them out. We don't want to have that sort of vigilante justice, this big brother attitude. I, I, I don't know if many of you have read, China has been actually ushering in that era with the help of 200 million closed-circuit TV cameras. And they use them to try to help them, their government catch people either doing things right or, or wrong. 
and then they get points either into the negative or, or sorry, into the positive or negative, and, and with that comes reward or uh, the taking away of things. This is actually happening in, in our world now, and we don't want that here. We don't want uh, a community that is just bent towards trying to catch people. We want to be a community that is discerning and that's behaving lovingly towards one another. So if you don't know what to do, this is an exact science. If you don't know what to do, come and talk to us about this. And we can help you with how we can start performing this. Because make, let's make no mistake, we need to do this. If unity requires accountability, we need to be holding each other accountable if we want to be leading holy lives. Because, like, let's put it this way. I, I want to get better at following Jesus. I am not even close to being to following Jesus perfectly. And I want to get better at doing that. But I need you, my community, to help me do that. So, but I need you to do it in love. I need you to to be able to come alongside me and and help me. But if I'm being obstinate for my own good and and for yours, like Paul says in, in verse 13, don't invite me over for dinner. Because I, I know that God loves me. Recovering knife liquor and all, Paul, Paul loves me just the way I am. Sorry, Paul. God. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a follower of, Apollo, of Paul and not Apollos. God loves me the way I am. And he loves you the way you are. He accepts you the way you are. But God loves us all so much that he's not willing to let us stay there. Right? He, he wants us to be moving forward. He wants to, us to be growing in our faith and growing in our witness. So I encourage everybody to think about that, to run to the grace that's in our Lord Jesus. And I'll close with this. 2 Timothy 2.1 reads, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, today. Thank you for this morning and for your grace in our lives. We're so grateful that you've given us this passage to to work through and to think about as we think about unity in the church and this uh, incredible opportunity that we have to not only hold each other accountable for our own uh, work towards holiness, being made in your image, but also we think about our mission into the world. Help us be able to be tighter, to be a closer community, one that seeks the good for one another, not just rejoicing at wrongdoing, but instead rejoicing in the truth. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we want to be lovers of people. We want to be lovers of you that seek to be unified. So as we think about this, as we go from here today, um, convict us, Lord, if, if we need to be convicted, but please encourage us to live this out. In your name, amen.